0: Welcome to Vermont Point. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, January 24th, and today, something different. We like to keep you off guard here at the show. So today, we're do- devoting the entire program to climate change. It's here, and it's affecting us right now. The Flooding in central Vermont and around the state is only the latest example. The farmers know it, the hunters know it, and the skiers know it and the rest of us know it. So let's examine it closely today and see what Vermont is doing about it. We start with someone who I call the godfather of the climate change discussion. You probably don't know his name. He's not as famous as Vermont's own Bill McKibben on this subject, but Rafe Pomerantz was raising the alarm about carbon in the atmosphere back in in the 1970s, and he is still at it. So we talk to him first, and then we're going to talk. Take a completely different angle, and we're going to talk to New York-based writer Anya Kamenitz. She's the author of a respected newsletter in which she examines climate change through the emotional lives of children, including her own. And lastly, the policy side: What are Governor Phil Scott and the legislature doing about climate change in Vermont? Can Vermont really play? an impactful role in reducing climate pollution? Can we make ourselves resilient enough to survive the coming warming? You can hear us at AM 550, of course, and various FM stations, not to mention our podcast at WDEVradio.com. Shortly after the show uh, wraps today, it will be uh, on our website. We welcome your calls and emails as always. The number to call, 802 244 1777. Send me your emails at vtviewpoint at com. All that and more. But first, the New Hampshire primary for the presidency is over. Donald Trump, former president, defeated incumbent, indicted defendant, twice impeached, and accused sexual predator is now the presumptive nominee for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. Whatever your politics, however you see this, this is an incredible story, the likes of which we have never seen before. Trump's victory in the New Hampshire primary gives him total control over the Republican Party and puts to rest any thought that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley could rescue the hopes of Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans to save the party and the country from the Trump juggernaut. Trump vanquished Haley today, 54, uh, yesterday, sorry, 54 to 43% of the vote. The message, none of the old rules apply. The notion of the New Hampshire primary and its voters upsetting the balance of power, as it has done so often in the past, did not happen. The criminal indictments against Trump, along with the determination by a judge that he is guilty of sexually assaulting a woman named E. Jean Carroll in a Bloomingdale's dressing room many years ago, did not hurt him. Millions of dollars in anti-Trump activism and campaigning did not hurt him. The campaign of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, thought to be the guy who could be the anti-Trump, or Trump-lite, disappeared along with millions of dollars raised and spent. Trump now stands alone, racing to the nomination, remaking our politics and has a better-than-even chance of retaking the White House from the incumbent Democrat Joe Biden. To me, it is the biggest story in the world. It is so improbable, so unexpected, that we will continue to explore it here on this show. How did this happen? What happened to the American voter that they would stick by their man despite everything? I would remind you that as a young reporter in 1988 in Washington – I covered Joe Biden, who was caught plagiarizing a couple of lines from a couple of speeches, and he was out of the race in minutes, at least in campaign election time. Uh, Other candidates, including Gary Hart and others, out of the race uh, for doing things in campaign terms uh, far less drastic than, than Trump has done. And yet they're out of the race in minutes. I give you this prediction. It will only get more bizarre from here. Democrats are in a panic. They have an 80-plus-year-old incumbent that most voters don't want to run. They have few arguments that work against Trump and his voters, and they don't know what to do. The president has dispatched his two top White House aides to help rescue the campaign. Jen O'Malley Dillon and Mike Donlin are leaving the White House for the campaign this week. If they, don't, if they do know what to do, they are welcome to come on this show and tell us. If there is a story bigger than the Trump story, it is our next subject after our first break, climate change. And we take it on with one of the early experts who sounded the alarm so many years ago. And we'll get to that after our first break. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. One time back in the 1990s, early 1990, when I was the environmental reporter at the Burlington Free Press, a stranger walked into the newsroom. He was attending a conference of some kind on the environment, and I was writing about it. Back then, climate change was just emerging into the mainstream, and I had written a few stories about it. This man, our next guest, said to me, why aren't the ski areas in Vermont lobbying to stop climate change? They will be destroyed by it when there is no more snow. I hadn't given it much thought, but from from then on, I started writing more and more stories about climate change and how it would affect the environment and economy and lives of everyone in Vermont. All these years later, When I watched the Winooski River rise up and decimate the city of Montpelier a few months ago, I thought of that visit with this early activist and leader of the anti-climate change movement. His name is Rafe Pomerantz, and his resume is too long to recite. The National Clean Air Coalition, Friends of the Earth, the World Resources Institute, the White House, Arctic 21, and so much more. He is one of the first Americans to bring climate change to public attention, that a buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would harm the planet, and he joins me now. Welcome, Rafe Pomerantz, to the
1: show. Thank you. Good morning.
0: Good morning. It's it's great to have you. It's a it's a walk down memory lane for me because <laughs> uh, because uh, in the newsroom back in, gosh, it was either an eighty nine or ninety. I'll never forget you looking me in the eye and saying, why aren't the ski areas doing something more about climate change? <laughs>
1: oh. oh, good. I'm glad we had the, the conversation. Sounds like it was productive.
0: Well, it, and take us back, if you would, uh, before 1990, all the way back sure. to the 70s, and tell us how you first discovered uh Climate change, global warming, and carbon buildup in the atmosphere?
1: Sure. Um, I, uh, well, I was an environmental activist, organizer at the time, and I had helped to found an organization called the National Clean Air Coalition. I was working at Friends of the Earth, and we ran this coalition from our office. It was all about preserving the integrity of the Clean Air Act, and in, starting in '73 during the time of the Arab oil embargo, and we ended up finishing those amendments in '77. One of the unresolved issues during that debate was what to do about acid rain, and I went on to do research on acid rain after the conclusion of the '77 amendments. And it wasn't long thereafter I read a report from EPA on the environmental impacts of coal in which there was a sentence referring to the fact that coal was likely to increase the temperature of the planet. It was going to warm the planet. And I was so astonished, I just, I blurted out, this is the whole banana. I couldn't really, uh, it was such a surprise because in all my work on the Clean Air Act amendments, this is, the issue of carbon dioxide and the greenhouse effect and global warming was never discussed in the Congress, in the government, anywhere. So, the next day, one of my colleagues, Betsy Ago, brought an article from Rocky Mountain News about a talk given by a geophysicist named Gordon McDonald, a very prominent geophysicist who had just finished working with a group called the Jasons Physicists to produce a model of what the future would be like with increased concentrations of carbon dioxide. A, and, uh, This fellow, Gordon McDonald, happened to work on the Beltway in D.C. at the Minor Corporation. I called him up. I went out there. We spent two hours together where he briefed me on how the whole thing worked. I said, okay, if I set up the meetings, will you do the briefings? Because I was a lobbyist. I wasn't a scientist. And we proceeded to have a multi-year relationship uh, where we briefed people in the administration, in Congress, in the media. And ultimately, there's a lot in between. I just jumped to one of the major conclusions here. In 1985, 86, and 87, and 88, we helped organize a series of congressional hearings, all of which well, got an enormous amount of coverage, relatively speaking, because there wasn't any up until that point. And that coverage is what really triggered uh involvement by, or I should say those hearings and the coverage that followed them helped to trigger uh, a, a big shift. The government started to pay attention, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed. That's a kind of long-winded version of something that took a few years. say Maybe it's a short summary of that. But, you know, um, a lot of memories in there, including going to visit Jim Hansen, No, the famous climate scientist in New York. And I'm remembering, the way I remember it is I said to him after listening to him, you have to become a congressional witness. Are you willing to do that? And he said yes. And we organized uh, some opportunities for him. He was an extremely courageous, forthright guy, had a big impact and continues to this day. So, you know, my work was with scientists trying to bring them forward with their message.
0: Um, I wonder I wonder if we could stay in memory lane for a minute, because a lot of our listeners re- remember those days. And I want to draw a Vermont connection. Um, sure. I know you're a, D- a DC guy, but uh, there's a lot of people in Vermont, for instance, uh, who you worked with, both at the White House, at EPA, and at the World Resources Institute. One of whom is Jonathan Lash, who was the head of the World Resources Institute, who was our yes. uh, natural resources secretary in the 80s and 90s, and yes. now yes. of course the famous Gus Speth, who is at uh, lives in Stratford, Vermont, and is and is at the uh, Vermont Law School. Those were colleagues of yours.
1: They were, and uh, both of them played key roles. I will say that uh, Gordon McDonald, as geophysicist, and I. One of the most important meetings we had was with Gus Speth. I knew Gus. I called him up. I say, are you willing to meet with me? And Gordon, he said, yes, we go in there. He's at CEQ at the time. And he says, well, I can't do anything about this until unless you write me a report. I need a report. So Gordon went off, and he, George Woodwell, you may know that name, Roger Ravell and David Keeling wrote a short report on the carbon dioxide problem to submit to Gus, who then went about using that report inside the Carter administration for all kinds of initiatives, and then Gus of course went on to set up the World Resources Institute, which has been enormously successful and I think that briefing helped with where he went with it. I went to work for him in eighty five was it eighty uh, where where I was able I got the freedom and resources to help make all these congressional hearings I was talking about happen, so Gus has a huge legacy he's obviously continued to write about this, speak about it, work at it in all kinds of ways and same with Jonathan he what jumps to mind is Jonathan's work on the energy mobilization board and uh you know um synthetic fuels, which was a Carter administration initiative and a terrible idea. And I think Jonathan was key in bringing it down. He he, was he at? I think he was at NRDC at the time, and of course he went on to succeed Gus at WRI.
0: So yeah, there's there's a huge number of uh, Vermont links here. But uh, let me throw one other name
1: before Robert Stafford, the senator. You know, Ah, don't forget you had some great politicians there who really stood up for this stuff.
0: Well. Well, and it's and it's worth. We'll get into more of the politics later, but it's worth mentioning that Robert Stafford was a Republican
1: and yes. uh, was yes.
0: the ranking member on the Environment Committee, um, yep. and a, and and a legend in in Vermont politics. But um, uh-huh. com- comment if you would on Bob Stafford as a Republican versus the system that exists, the the political <laughs> you know Republicans that exist today.
1: Yeah. Well, Stafford was a, a, uh, you know, there were a group of liberal Republicans uh, in the Senate who were open on environmental issues and supportive. I can think of Stafford, a guy from Minnesota named David Durenberger, and uh, a hero of mine, John Chafee from Rhode Island, were all Republicans. They were all on the Environment and Public Works Committee. Durenberger chaired the hearing in '85. Stafford, which ones he, he he I don't remember which ones he did, but he was very big on leading the fight against chlorofluorocarbons, which were ozone-depleting gases. And he had a key staff person working for him named Curtis Moore, who was a key facilitator in making all this happen. And uh, then there was John Chafee, who held the hearings on June 10th and 11th, '86, which in my mind blew the issue open. Uh, and, uh, and Chafee, in fact, announced a series of initiatives on climate change at that hearing. So here are three Republicans, Durenberger, Stafford, Chafee, who in that period of the 80s were key in moving this along. Of course, there were a lot of Democrats too, uh, Ed Muskie and Gary Hart and others, but uh, so that was a different, you, you you have to look long and hard to find Republicans like that. I don't even, I, I wonder if they exist at all, because you can't, I think the problem is that the MAGA base in the Republican Party won't tolerate deviance from, uh, you know, their their stance, which includes taking the climate issue, well, they don't take it seriously, but What's required is to take it extremely seriously, and they don't buy that. So, we're, you know, Trump. What did he do? His first one of his first acts as president was to take the the, the United States out of the Paris Agreement, you know, and he 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 uh, he disparaged the climate science, and that's kind of um, how it's still going. It's uh, even though a place like Florida is uh, under an existential threat from sea level rise, truly. And it's happening. It's visible. We have all the estimates. But, you know, Trump, DeSantis, Rick Scott, who was the governor for eight years, wouldn't allow climate change to be mentioned. He's now, you know, high-ranking Republican in the Senate. And, you know, it's appalling, appalling. Um, I wonder if
0: you could uh, talk about a famous book, and uh, which was excerpted in the New York Times Magazine by a pretty famous writer named Nathaniel Rich called "Losing Earth," which <laughs> which which uh, reviews your role in all of this. And and right. it's as I said, it's called "Losing Earth," and it basically says that we've lost. There was a decade or so when we had a chance. We were on a path to fix this problem, and we failed because of our politics and selfishness, et cetera, et cetera. Could you talk about that article a little bit?
1: Oh, sure. Well, um, I actually had written a, a, a short chapter in a book edited by Dean Abrahamson of the university of Minnesota on climate change, which was about the emergence of the climate change issue, how it kind of came from nowhere to, you know, from an empty room to a, to a room full of activists, so to speak. And, um, I think that Nathaniel read that chapter and, and 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 it helped to formulate his his uh decision to write about these early years. I think that's what I think. Anyway, Nathaniel, you know, did a huge research job on that article um and the I think the title of the piece will unfortunately only become more profound over time because That's what, you know, losing Earth isn't so far from what's happening. And, yeah, there were a lot of initiatives back then to try to get things moving. Part of the problem was that there became this massive counter-propaganda effort within certain industries to undermine the science of climate change, which helped to stifle getting things off the ground at that point. And had well, for example, you know, had everybody Republicans and Democrats come together, and said, "Yes, this is a crisis. We have to act right now. things could have been different in the American political system. The odds of that happening are low it- it could have happened had we don't know what would have happened if ExxonMobil had said, Yeah, we agree with this. this is really trouble. We have to get out of we have to move in a rapid transition." Off of carbon based fuels if if ExxonMobil and others instead had stopped their uh, um, propagandistic advertising uh, things could have been different. However, I would say that making the transition from carbon based fuels on the entire planet, you know every country on earth is the largest task that humans have ever faced because it, it has to be done. You can't... Uh, you, it, and it revolves everybody and every government and every economy in a huge way. So, um, you know, Nathaniel's view that this could have happened has some validity, but it's still a big leap to have made it happen back then.
0: Our guest is Rafe Pomerantz. He is, uh, to my mind, sort of the godfather of the uh anti climate change movement he's been a lobbyist a policy uh director he's worked in the white house and for environmental organizations for the last 30 years in the minute we've got left um can you just give us the the before the break um the we are at sort of 1 degree warming and in the article and most of the reports 2 degrees warming is is a serious crisis could you talk about the science just a bit
1: Sure. Well, we're we're at really more closer to one and a half degrees. And the story I noticed is the other day, when I started working on this in 1979, since 79 to today, the Earth has warmed up one degree centigrade in those 45 years. That is an incredible rate of change. Just, you know, when you look over geologic time, it's unbelievable. Much of the Earth is already at 1.5 degrees. These are, in my mind, these numbers, these temperature numbers are They're helpful, but they're not the only guide we need. We need to construct models that show what the impacts are at various temperature levels. So I'll give you an example. In the 1980s, corals started to bleach. This is not a new story. We were seeing the climate signal back in the 80s because the oceans had already started to warm. So uh, what the science is telling, and, and when you look in historic climate t- times, Two degrees, you know, you start to worry that you're going to lose Greenland or large chunks of Antarctica. You have to worry about the fate of the ice sheets. That should be at the top of the agenda. We have to keep them intact. How are we going to do that? Because the amount of sea level rise you're going to get is so large, you'll see massive di- displacement of population. I wonder, before we leave,
0: Rafe, the the old days, uh, take us back, and I, re- I remember being in a Washington, D.C. newsroom as a young newspaper reporter in 1988 when James Hansen testified before Congress about climate change. And that was the moment that my eyes uh, were opened. Can you take us back to that year? Ah, it looks like we've lost Rafe Pomerantz. So while we wait for Rafe to call us back, we're going to go to the phones and we're going to talk to Bruce somewhere in central Vermont
2: Bruce, welcome to the show. Actually, I'm sorry Mr. Pomerantz uh, isn't on. He's right here.
0: We've got him. Go ahead, Bruce. Do we still have Bruce
1: on the line? Oh, you got Pomerantz.
0: Okay, well, we have Rave Pomerantz, and I think we lost Bruce. Uh, Rave, I wonder if you could take us back. Um, we're now moving through time here, and I remember sitting in a in a newsroom in Washington, D.C., watching um, uh, James Hansen at the 1988 congressional hearing talking about this, and I think that's right. when my eyebrows first got raised about this issue. Yeah. Can you take us back to that hearing and how it happened?
1: Sure. Um, Tim Wirth was the chair of that hearing. Uh, Gordon MacDonald and I briefed uh, Bennett Johnston, who was from Louisiana, who was the chair of the Energy Committee, and he, he uh, turned the issue kind of over to Tim Wirth. Johnson was interested, and Wirth held a hearing in 87, an interesting one, on energy that became the basis for his energy bill at that time. But then he was in a briefing in the Senate uh, dining room, With the Stockholm Environmental Institute had done a new analysis. And he walks out, I would remember, I was outside. He walks out, he says, I want to do a hearing. Okay, well, what's it going to be? So I remember talking to a staff guy, terrific staff guy named David Harwood.
0: Yeah. Keep going. Okay, I think we lost Ray Pomerantz again. Well, we'll we'll see if we can raise him again uh sorry for the interruption he was talking rape was talking about the, the hearing that um oh gosh tim worth uh was a senator from Colorado and he later went on to work uh to work at the state department on climate change and it was Pomerantz who uh, it was uh, uh tim worth who who uh, held that hearing at which uh uh the uh what's his name, James Hansen, uh, testified, he was from the Goddard Space Institute, and it was Hansen who testified that the Earth was no longer in what they call the range of variability, meaning we couldn't stop uh, the the warming of the Earth from uh, warming more than two degrees centigrade. And if that were to happen, uh, sort of all bets were off, and we didn't know uh, what would happen and back then uh soon to be vice president al gore was a huge uh participant in that so let's go to the phone and talk to bruce uh bruce uh sorry we're we're having some technical difficulty but uh go ahead
2: well, well thank you kevin um i hope i can fill some air um i want to thank mr pomerantz if he gets back on for raising the name of robert stafford Uh, for whom I worked for eight years in the Senate. And he also mentioned Curtis Moore, who was a colleague of mine I haven't seen in about 10 years. But the last 10 speeches of Senator Stafford's career when he was retiring in the Senate in 1988 were devoted to the subject of of climate change. But um, he was also, Stafford is very overlooked in terms of his record, Nationally, in protecting uh, core environmental legislation, I remember the last time I saw Curtis, uh, he said if they had adopted some of the proposals Bob Stafford came up with, along with Tim Worth, uh, we would have cut our emissions significantly. Although those ideas were a bit would be outdated today, some of the some of the techniques. So I really, if you get Mr. Pomerantz back on, please thank him on my behalf. He also mentioned before he. Um, got disconnected, the Stockholm uh, Research Institute. And one of the, the folks in Stockholm do, they developed something called planetary boundaries, or eight or nine. Climate change is only one. And we are pushing through these limits and these boundaries in so many different areas. Land abuse, nitrogen, excessive nitrogen, so, the way we treat water. So, I think we have to deal with climate change, but in many ways, that I believe is a symptom, a symptom of Western ways of living that like to gobble up things and uh, push all these boundaries. So I'm sorry I can't have that conversation with Mr. Pomerantz, but I I did want to thank you for raising the issue. I want to thank you, too, for remembering. Uh, what Senator Stafford achieved while he was in the Senate. He was a very quiet man. He didn't like to brag, uh, but I learned a lot from him, particularly my last two years when I came up here to be a state director. We'd drive around Vermont, and he would talk to me about chlorofluorocarbons, climate change, <laughs> ground-level ozone versus a- atmospheric ozone, uh, acid rain. So I learned a lot. He felt it. He felt it. And I think that was important, and I think his legacy uh, needs to be celebrated uh, and replicated by the way we conduct ourselves today.
0: Well, Bruce, uh, feel free to stay on the line because Ray Pomerantz is back, and I think okay. uh, both of you uh, enjoy uh, going back and forth on this subject of Bob Stafford, the famous Republican senator from uh from Vermont, Bruce, you might you, you might remind us was he he was at one time chair of the environment, the Senate Environment Committee, correct?
2: Yes, he became chair of it was the Committee on Environment and Public Works, and uh, he was stunned <laughs> with the elections in '98 uh, or uh, 1980 when uh, the Republicans actually captured the Senate. Uh, He was at a friend's house in Rutland. They were having a cocktail party about the elections. You might remember Stuart Smith. And uh, all of a sudden they started getting the returns and they started calling Bob Stafford Mr. Chairman. And it was a role he never thought he would have. But when he got in that chair, he seized the opportunity. Uh, not just on environmental issues. I handled education issues for him, but he had an excellent staff and Curtis Moore was one of those people. He pushed back against the Reagan administration who wanted to weaken the weakened Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. And again, as I said, he ended his career with 10 speeches from the Senate floor about dealing with climate change.
0: Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your call. Let's go back to Rick Pomerantz. Um, Riff, we have to move out of memory lane and Bob Stafford (laughs) and into the the present now. Um, It's difficult. I guess my question is is somewhat metaphysical for you. How do you keep going, given the evidence that tells us that uh, it's too late? How how do you keep optimistic, and how do you keep going?
1: Well, the the description that it's too late is uh – it could be one way. It's too late for some things. I mean, we've caused uh, an enormous amount of climate damage already, and more is on the way. But beyond what's on the way, if we keep, you know, there's there's even more. There's always more, and it can get worse and worse. So, you have to bring it. You have to bring down the concentrations of greenhouse gas and use other interventions to try to keep the planet within. Uh, you know. It's habitable, so to speak, and um, how do I keep going? I don't know, I'm just, the way my personality is, I look for ideas on how to move things forward. Um, and it's pretty easy to get depressed about it, because it is depressing, and, you know, the, the longer that, when I was, I was just struck when I mentioned the other day that we'd, the, the planet had warmed up a degree centigrade in 45 years, I mean, just in my own, the lifetime of my own career. I thought that was extraordinary, and you know cuz numbers like 2 degrees are just in historic climate terms are huge for what impacts are associated with those numbers when the earth was that much warmer so yeah how do you keep going well i guess as an organizer and a lobbyist and an advocate i keep coming up with ideas about how to how to try to turn this and the la- i just mentioned the last thing i'm doing is the or the, at the moment is something called campaign limit to sea level rise we started this in florida where we're urging the state of florida to declare an upper limit to sea level rise so that you can actually give people a quantitative goal for something they understand which most people don't really understand a global temperature goal of one and a half or two degrees what that means for them but a goal in terms of sea level rise is something people could understand let's say in vermont The climate goal was to limit the movement of maple trees to Canada by chain, limit the range by which the maple forests move into Canada, or limit the damage to snowpack. Now, these are tough estimates to make, but they can be made. So all of a sudden, the state's climate goals would be set against particular impacts that mean something to the people of the state. And... um, That's something I'm I'm involved in right now. We'll see if it catches on. But we think the sea level rise idea could go global. I mean, uh, even in New England, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island are all highly vulnerable and should have uh, sea level rise goals or upper limits. And Vermont even could consider limits on impacts in Vermont. That's one way I think we can drive a solution uh, more quickly. Um, the other thing i say is the politics of it all, are, you know, our, uh, the solutions are politically dependent. And as long as the politics are so divided, so politicized, so divisive on this, you know, it's tough, it's tough going.
0: What, uh, our guest is Rafe Pomerantz. He's uh, a long time environmental activist and, uh, lobbyist and
1: soothsayer
0: <clears throat> on the issue of climate change. I wonder, Rafe, take us down, further down the policy rabbit hole here. What is the bet I mean, we're obviously, the Biden administration is trying to push us down a, a, a transformation to an electric economy. Um, I, I don't think we, as you said earlier, I don't think we've ever seen any an effort this large to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. But right. that to you, that is the right policy, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, what the Biden administration did was get in place this massive uh, set of subsidies and incentives to make the transition in all kinds parts of our economy. That's an amazing achievement. And implementing it is a huge task. So it's directionally correct. It used to be the economists would tell you, well, the right way to do this is to tax emissions of carbon. That's the most efficient way to do it. You get the lowest cost path that way. So, okay, we tried that. It was called the BTU tax under Clinton-Gore. And it was defeated, and Democrats lost a lot of seats in the House, in part due to their advocacy. Same thing with Obama's uh, cap and trade. It was portrayed as a tax. Democrats suffered defeat, not only because of that, but in part. And this time with Biden, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it's all about subsidies and incentives and that's far less politically controversial. It may be the net cost is somewhat higher, but it got done and it's a huge achievement, an act of imagination really that that they could come up with something that big and get it done. And by hair in the Senate. And uh so I think it's the right direction and you know, there is a transition underway. The issue is how how complete it is. Um, how fast uh, and can can it occur globally? And you know, it's just the, the cheaper the substitute technologies, the better we are. So the more we, the more solar we put out there, the more wind, the cheaper it gets, and therefore becomes, uh, a, you know, a more rapid replacement for carbon-based fuels.
0: Yeah, is, is it so? what do you say about india china and the other countries that are still bur- that are still building coal plants how do we
1: get them to m-
0: go with us on this
1: well i think well we're working at it but they are beginning to see just as we are they are beginning to see major impacts in heat in the loss of the himalayan glaciers and river flow and agriculture and so on so they got to worry too and I think that the way to do it is is to, as I say, is to lower the cost of substitutes for new coal-fired power plants and and even for existing plants. You have to have the cheaper substitutes to get rid of that infrastructure. It's a big job, huge job. And um, uh, keep at it. You know, there's 70,000 people there in the last COP uh, a, a couple of months ago or a month ago. And, you know... That's incredible. The world is paying attention. The question is, can the world move fast enough? And that's, you know, right now we're not. Uh,
0: so give us give us something. You know, so much of this news is negative. Um, and our next guest, we're going to talk about climate change through the eyes of children. Um, talk about something positive you can give us to, to sort of put us on a path to a more positive future what you know what keeps you going
1: well I think there's a there's a real opportunity for to participate in this transformation it's transfer technological it's economic it's community based and that's exciting to be a part of this transition that is um you know one of the great challenges that humanity has faced so that can be an exciting um effort to participate in for all generations. And you learn a lot in the process. You learn about solar, wind, insulation, you know, um, heat pumps, you name it. Uh, There's a lot to be done in moving our economy into a new place. That's very exciting. I mean, that's a way to look at it, right? And uh, that we can fight our way out of this and that we have to. And that's That's just a job for current generations and future generations. This is going to be a central feature of the next couple of centuries.
0: And I can't let you go without um, asking you about the presidential uh, race coming up. Uh, I have a
1: suggestion for Vermonters. Get the third-party candidates out of the race.
0: Ah, Uh, uh, say more Vermonters
1: might have a shot at. Jill Stein... And so the Green Party, it's an outrage. All they do is take votes away from Biden. You want to vote for Trump? Vote for Jill Stein. Look what she did to Hillary Clinton. So I, I thought, what I tell Vermonters about the election, of course, vote for Joe Biden. Vote against Donald Trump, but get the third-party candidates out of the race.
0: Ray Pomerantz. Uh he's been at this for 30-plus years. Uh, he was there at the beginning. At 45. The 40, 45 years. Uh, James Hansen, Gus Speth, Rafe Pomerantz, if there's a Hall of Fame on uh, working against climate change, time. he's in it. Thank, Thank you. you very much for joining us.
1: Okay. Me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Well,
0: Rafe Pomerantz, uh, that is that is one uh, view of the climate change debate, and uh, he couldn't resist the, the partisan uh, get the third-party candidates out of the race his view is that uh if you know the only way to make uh progress on climate change is to elect Joe Biden because uh uh the the Trump uh Republican party is just still is still relatively in denial that it exists um so we'll see where that goes um our next guest uh, is going to give us a whole different angle on climate change as we stay with this issue for the entire show. Uh, our guest, Anya Kamenitz, is a writer, and she's going to talk about climate change through the eyes of children. And uh, she uh, is a journalist and a author. She's a writer of a newsletter called The Golden Hour, which focuses on uh, how children react to crises, uh, she's also um, the author of a book called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. She's a former science uh, writer for NPR and uh, uh, author of many other books. So we are going to take uh, a break. Uh, we're going to be back. Uh, or we're devoting the entire show today uh, to climate change uh, in, our, in our third segment We're going to talk to Johanna Miller. She's the Energy and Climate Program Director at the Vermont Natural Resources Council. She's going to talk to us about what is going on in the Vermont legislature and with Governor Scott and what they're doing about climate change. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back with our next guest, Anya Kamenetz, right after these messages. You're listening to WDEV.